0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Antibas. Hey, everybody. This week, check out this episode from the Her Archives, where I talked with Potawatomi author and speaker, Caitlin Curtis. Can y'all believe it's been two years of the pandemic? This episode was recorded in May of 2020. Caitlin and I had planned for our conversation to be a part of her book tour for her book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. The book tour was supposed to be in person. We were supposed to have this conversation in front of an audience, but we had to pivot instagram live during the shelter in place listen in as we discuss caitlin's journey of decolonization and reconnecting with her identity as an indigenous woman check it out are you there we did instagram live oh my gosh i think you might be my first person that i've ever like done this type of thing so thank you thank you for joining everyone welcome Prior to COVID-19, Caitlin and I were supposed to be doing this live in full effect in Atlanta. There's going to be a reading. We were going to talk. We were going to hug you, shake your hands. We were going to do all sorts of things (laughs) that we can't do now. (laughs) So I'm going to hold up Caitlin's book, even though I know it'll be backwards for you all. But this, yay, get right here. See, you need to do this. So if you don't have a copy already, please, please, please get your copy and get maybe like four more copies. I think you should get, I think you should buy five copies of Kaylin's book is what I'm telling you. So get this. You can get this from your favorite bookseller. We are recommending that that is an indie bookseller if you can do it. We want to make sure we can help our indie booksellers during this time. So if you have any favorites of those, do that. Caitlin, we have so much to talk about. I know. A thousand things. But I would love for you to maybe pick a poem from your book. Would you do that and do yeah. a bit of a reading for us? <laughs> Caitlin's book is a mix of poetry and nonfiction, but you will get a chance to hear a little bit of the poetry tonight. So yeah, yeah. can you share with us?
1: Okay, I'm going to read. Um, this is the poem from the very beginning of the book. So from part one called Beginnings. And this is the poem. So, the the book is split into five sections, and each section starts with a poem because I just wanted to give people, like, sort of a breath before you get into the hard stuff. So, this is the poem at the very beginning of the book. Before there was everything, there was nothing. But before there was nothing, there was something, something other, unbound, beyond, above, mystery. No one could grasp it then. And no one can grasp it now Not even with these realities Coming among us And creating something new Day in and day out Despite our dry and weary bones Because before us There was everything And before everything Nothing was something And something was the beginning And we are just dust From its long flowing robe
0: Uh, Ugh, y'all I have to do all the clapping like we would. <laughs> so I just loved getting to hear more of that. I mean, we got to hear a little bit of your poetry and lyrical writing and your first book Glory happening, which you all are also welcome to go and buy that too. You know, you can go and buy five copies of that if you'd like to as well. Uh, but it's wonderful to have that in each section. Yes. There's like a poem that corresponds. Yeah,
1: with- every every essay has like a prayer that's basically a poem behind it. So,
0: yeah. (sighs) Y'all, I just, okay. I have a thousand things I'm trying to talk to you about, Caitlin. So let me, let me try to think about even where to begin. I guess a place, one place where I want to start is decolonization and deconstruction are two big themes uh, in this book, right? And I love that as a part of your own journey and story It was really beautiful for me to see that it's not just about decolonizing and deconstructing. It's about what we are rebuilding as well. It's about what we decide, we reclaim, we return to what we make, what we create. (laughs) You also have this wonderful quote in the book where you say decolonization is always an invitation. Can you tell us more, what has the process been like for you decolonizing in general, decolonizing your spirituality? What has that been like and how do you get from the decolonizing and deconstructing to what you will build, what will be?
1: Yeah. You know, so for those who don't know, you know, decolonization is sort of the very um, academic term, you know. So it's like it can literally be like like nations breaking down their systems of colonization. Um, But I I'm taking it on more of a personal level of let's examine what systems we participate in and let's figure out if we can take the colonization out of those things or step away from, from colonization. So within Christianity, I'm asking like, can we be Christian and get to a Jesus that's not a colonizer, that's not white, like we've been taught. Um, and what I'm learning and understanding is that, you know, deconstruction and decolonization for me have gone sort of hand in hand. And that like, it's not just like you flip on a switch and you're done. It's not like a, I'm decolonized now, like, it's all good, you know, or I've, I've deconstructed now, like, these are very long processes that I think are lifetime. I mean, this is, this is what being human is, is if we're born into a world that's a colonized world, it's going to take our whole lives to to continue breaking that down. But I think that's also really beautiful, because we get to do it together. Like, this is what it means to be human. And, you know, I think for me, it's just, you know when you become an adult you begin to ask questions of the systems you grew up in and so it's it's a natural process to ask these questions and to go on that journey of really considering like am i the only one who does this like are other people doing it finding your people like that um there are so many people who are on this journey uh, there's so many people who are asking within Christianity can this thing be decolonized or not and i think that we just we have to find new ways to talk about it and we have to journey together through it. And but I mean through this this book was hard to write. It was hard to write because decolonizing is it's painful. Like you're you're examining and you're looking and you're facing truth and then you're digging out what you can get rid of and you're keeping some of like it's hard, you know. Um but it's beautiful. Like it's it's a beautiful journey too.
0: I want to know <laughs> can you think of and I'm sure this came up in some book chapters too, but can you describe to us was there like a moment or a catalyst that you felt was a tipping point on you beginning that decolonization journey? I mean, in your book, you talk about your your time, like growing up closer to Native community. Yeah. You talked about your time growing up being in this totally different environment that was very like Southern Baptist and white. Yeah. And what, what was a moment or maybe some key moments where you felt like there was this tipping point in you of saying there is decolonization work I want to do? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think uh, Standing Rock was one, Standing Rock was one of the first kind of spaces that kind of just like broke me wide open to like, okay, like this is, this is the indigenous story and I'm part of it. And like something has to, like something has to be done. And so that kind of breaking open, like just coinciding with my own journey of listening to myself and honoring my ancestors in a way that I hadn't, been taught to do before, you know, coming back to myself in a way. And then that coincided with me, let's say I, you know, becoming a a worship leader in a church that's progressive and then realizing that they don't actually want the native parts of me really, like that they're uncomfortable with those parts. Then mm-hmm. it's like, well what do I do? You know, it's like literally like what am I supposed to do right now? Do I stay here? Do I stay with only parts of me in this building and with these people? Do I choose to leave? And And in that moment, I chose to leave. And then it just kind of like, when I realized that church really might not be a safe place for me anymore, I think that that was like, okay, um, if this system I've grown up in isn't safe, like I thought it was, and able to deal with my change and transformation, like, then I don't know how to be a part of it. And so I had to start asking those questions. Oh, So I did, I participated in these missions. Like I participated in purity culture. I participated in the way that these people are treating me. I probably participated in that towards someone else. And, you know, it's just like, then you just start going back in time and like recognizing all these things that you did. Like, I want to like, I want to send emails to all of the people in high school that I witnessed to and tell them I'm sorry. Like, I just want to be like,
0: I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah, like I think about some of the places that I went growing up on mission trips and just want to be like, if there was a way to somehow have a translator in this, you know, particular community where we were and be like, tell the people here in their language that um, I'm sorry for this bull right here. (laughs) And sorry about that. Please. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's such a real thing. It makes me think too, Caitlin, you know, just as I was reading through your book, and you know, in my own process of decolonization and deconstruction and how and how both things can be very scary, mm-hmm. especially as they are connected to your spirituality and as they might be connected to your personal identity, because then you're starting to be like, well, if I start decolonizing and pulling out the books I was told to read and the people's voices I was told to believe are the truth tellers. And then I realized, well, they're not telling the truth. And that starts pulling out from under you like all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sort of feeling like you're out there <laughs> floating now. And yeah. what, is, what does that mean? I remember having this moment when I was in college. And I graduated from Spelman College. And Spelman, um, for our people watching that aren't familiar with it, Spelman is one of two um, all black, all women uh, universities and colleges in America. And I was coming from, a Black Pentecostal church background, right? And I remember the first class I was in where one of um, my classmates was doing a presentation and she poured libations for her ancestors before she started her presentation. And I had no like theological framework for that. So I was like, ooh, the devil is, oh, oh, no. Like clutching your Bible. We will have to rebuke, rebuke hands. Oh, no, I didn't even know how to process any of that, Caitlin. Nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And then years later, especially as I sort of, I feel like came into my own more as a poet, as a performer, as a speaker, you know, then it wasn't as odd to me to think about how the women before me are present with me you know, yeah. in my work, as I write, as I'm on stage. And you and I just in our friendship talk a lot about that, how, you know, the women sort of, the women that we know in our family line, but even the women ancestors we don't know, mm-hmm. um, how they are informing uh, our process and and how we become who we become. Can you tell me how how you think about that? How How does sort of your connection to your remembrance of your honor of your ancestors and in particular uh those women ancestors how do you find that sort of entering your space as an author as a writer
1: yeah you know the so the the name of our tribe the Potawatomi tribe means the people of the place of fire and that's like the fire metaphor has always I've always loved fire anyway and so the fire metaphor has always meant a lot to me of like keeping that fire burning and um And what is beautiful about what you said is like the women that we never knew who are names we might not even know who are still the ones who came before us. And, um, you know, like my grandma, who's Potawatomi, so my, my Potawatomi grandma, like has visited me in dreams before. And, um, there, I write in the book about at our last house that we lived in, there was a tree in the backyard. that reminded me of her and I don't know why it just did, you know? So like when I visited that tree, I felt like I was close to her. And, and it's strange because she died when I was in high school and, uh, we never talked about being Potawatomi with her. Like it wasn't something we talked about at all. It's just, even if, even if she didn't talk about it, she still held, she's still Potawatomi, and like, that's still who I am. And, um, you know, for me, I think everything started happening in me, like this shift when I had children, because I realized what am I going to give them? Like, are they they deserve to get more than I got. And I want them to have that. I don't, I don't want to be ashamed of who I am or be, or not know how to talk about it. And along the way, um, when it has been hard, like what I've remembered is like the women who walked the trail of death. So the women who marched from Indiana to Kansas in this forced removal who carried their babies and who didn't give up and who knew that they knew that along the way that they might lose parts of their culture and they were holding on as hard as they could. And this way that like assimilation just takes from us. And it's just like, we hold on for dear life and we like claim resilience when and where we can. And I just, um, I feel like those women are constantly reminding me of who I am in ways that i that are probably not even like conscious to me, you know like they're just they're just there, yeah. and that is very scary to Christianity, like that whole idea like it's right. like, there's so much of it that is scary to people, um but so much of the world lives like that, like mm-hmm. we learn listen and learn from our ancestors and we learn from our ancestors' mistakes, like I have native and non-native ancestors, I have ancestors who did things that were atrocious that I have to like, I need to learn from that and be better. You know, like I am aware of the full spectrum of my ancestors and I have to be available to that, to those lessons and make sense of that for my life and do what I need to do. And that's also why decolonizing is so important because I decolonize for all of them, you know?
0: Mm. So. Oh, that's so powerful. That's so powerful to think about. I want to ask a question, but I got to tell like a little bit of a story and I'm more so telling the story for our people that are watching and listening as you and I have talked quite a bit about this when we were not recording for, <laughs> for the public. But I took a trip to Rwanda, actually my last trip to Rwanda, I took with a team of Black leaders and they were leaders in different capacities, some business, some theology, some you know, pastors. Like there was a lot of different roles each of us had and we were taking this trip through rwanda um, to this particular area and we were riding past this village and in the village as we're passing by it just looks like it looks like all the people in this community are working construction is what it looks like and so as we're driving past it's like you know most of us in the van that we're in are black from america And then our guide, she is Rwandan and Black. And then there was one white man um, from the organization on the American side that we were working with. And so we stopped in this village and while we're there, we're asking, well, what's happening here? Because you're just walking by seeing like all these people doing construction that you wouldn't think would be doing that kind Mm -hmm. of building. And so our guide was explaining to us, she said, you know, there are people in the community that are elderly, that need better homes, that need access to water. So the community is building these homes for them. And so then someone else on the bus said, well, where are they getting the money? And she said, oh, the government, the government gives them this money to like do this building. So for some of us in our Black American context, it just conjured up images of the projects, right? And like when the government gives money to sort of shuttle people to this one area, tell them this is where they have to be, tell them how, what materials it has to be built out of. And our guide had to tell us, oh no, that's not what I mean. She said, our government works in more of a communal way. And so she was like the the leaders of the village go to the government and say, here's what our village needs. Our village needs these homes for these elderly people. And the government says, here are the resources you need for that. And everyone in the community comes together. accomplish it. And she had to explain to us sort of the difference between Rwandan history and American. Mm. And as she's talking, I'm also trying to translate, not in a language way, but just translate like what she's saying, how would that apply in America? And of course, in the story of Rwanda, you know, we are seeing these two sort of tribal groups of people, one that committed, you know, egregious acts of violence against the other but the party that had been oppressed, like the people that had been oppressed came into power in Rwanda. And that changed a lot of how the country was led. And so I said to our rest of our people in the bus, I said, it's kind of like if you would imagine what would have happened to America if black and indigenous people had come into power and had been sort of what we are calling like the four parents, the four fathers and four mothers of the country. Like Imagine if we were looking back to that And instead of, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and whoever those other names would have been, that those would have been Black and Indigenous Mm. people. I always wanted to ask you Mm -hmm. and would love to just hear you riff on this for a minute. If you could reimagine America, if Black and Indigenous people had come into leadership here, if Black and Indigenous people had built what we are now calling America, what do you imagine this country would have been like?
1: you know, what's so sad and hard about this is that we are so like colonized and are thinking that it's hard to even figure it out. Like, it's so hard to even imagine it because we've never seen it. And like, it's like, it's like so hard to even conceptualize, you know? And like, that's so sad to me that like, I have to even think hard to get there, you know? But what I think about is these ideas of, which is, ideas of Indigenous people all over the world, these ideas of kinship and belonging and community. It's a communal way, like COVID or a pandemic wouldn't be dealt with with these individualists who are like rising up and like, it would have been dealt in a communal way, like dealt with in that way. These ideas of like, how do we take care of each other as a whole? And how do we, you know, act in relationship to one another in the earth? Like that's that's what I imagine is like Mm. these, partnerships and collaborations that come together over caring for the earth and caring for each other. Because that's, that's what I see today and small, these small collaborations and these, you know, like, that's what I see is Black and Indigenous people coming together to say, like, what, what needs to be better about this? And what does decolonizing look like? Well, it looks like that we, we hold each other up and we hold space with each other. And for natives, like we, um pay attention to anti-Blackness in the Native community. Like, and we talk about that. And mm-hmm. I'm a white passing Native, so I talk about Black and Brown Natives and how they face oppression very differently than I do. And like all, you know, like we just have these honest conversations, but they're rooted in kinship and they're rooted in belonging. And that is just not the way that America has been built by whiteness. It's not built that way. It is built by, you know, manifest destiny and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like all of this empire, Christianity, like mixed, you know, and how would we have, how would we have grown together in honoring our ancestors then, you know, Mm -hmm. even that, like that, that comes back, that would be, that would be such a different space in our life than it is when we've grown up colonized and within these systems of whiteness,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like you referenced in your book, um, Black Panther, and sort of this idea of of a place like Wakanda that had not been affected by colonization, you know. And so, when I think about this question, you know, even I was working on a writing project recently, where in the beginning of what I had to write, I really wanted to honor, you know, the Muskogee people mm-hmm. because I was writing about something like Atlanta-related, and. Yeah. I can't write about this land without writing about that. And as I was sort of digging into some research there, it just made my brain reimagine the nations that were here um, are still here. And like what it would be like sort of if Wakanda could, you know, if we could have that experience to get to reimagine that and like, what would it be like to be here in Georgia or in Atlanta where we are and to see, Uh, what the people who were on this land, uh, what they were like and what they were doing and how we have found ways to participate in some things together and honor the differences there. Like I it's like it's like I get uh, really excited about it. And I remember (laughs) as we were talking about it, the bus we were in, it brought this like deep lament Mm -hmm. in the bus. I remember as we were talking about it, we all got really quiet and had to really have a moment of prayer right there and just lamenting that, unfortunately, that's not what happened. But uh, one of the things I have loved, not only about being your friend, but also just learning from you, is this constant reminder that Indigenous people are here, uh, that we, when we talk about Native and Indigenous people, we're not talking about some long time ago. We are also talking about today. And I'd love to hear from you who are the indigenous leaders, like that, we think about. You know, what would have happened if Black and Indigenous people had been sort of like the founding government, right, of America? And thankfully, we have so many Black and Indigenous leaders who are who are organizing today, who gotcha. are reimagining America, right? Yeah. Um, who are are maybe some of those people with just some of the work that is really inspiring you right now?
1: Yeah, um, I love that because even a native like I. I mostly try to cite indigenous authors because just because I want people to like if if my book is the first book that anyone reads by an indigenous person, that first makes me sad because I don't want it to be my book that's the first one <laughs> like I want it to be someone better than me but but just like I hope that this they go to the back and see this list of all these possibilities and and they're not it's not like I'm citing all christian natives like i it's people all i mean it's like socialists, like what whatever, like whatever kind of native, like just read about us, like learn something different, you know, um, learn the truth about our history. Um, oh gosh, okay, I have I have so many uh leaders that I love, but um uh Tara Huska who's a like climate activist, um Winona LaDuke who runs um Honor the Earth, which they're just incredible. I buy wild rice from them and so they um, harvest pipeline free wild rice, so just like reconnecting back to the land. Um, Dallas Gold Tooth and uh, my friend Nick Estes both um, help with organizations that are just doing incredible work, and and I just love it because we all we all might imagine things a little differently in the way that we decolonize. Like right now, all that I can quite get to is like I need to decolonize my Christianity, and they're they're like talking about the systems and they're talking about like governments and. They're talking to indigenous people all over the world. And, you know, so it's like we're all um, having this conversation in our different contexts. You know, some of us are academics. Some of us are not academics. Like some of us are artists and we're just trying to like create what we can, where we can. And I think that that's really powerful and important. What's so sad to me is I see these incredible people and I know that they like in the general audience of America, they're not going to be heard and I'm not going to be heard because the indigenous story is so much in the past, like to people. And I hope that books like mine, like help wake people up to that reality that we're just, we're here and we're creating things, you know, and we're, we are leading, whether you recognize it or not, like we're leading things, you know, yes.
0: Yes, this is my reminder to you all. If you are late (laughs) to this conversation, this is Caitlin's new book, Native, just out this week. Go, as soon as you finish listening to us, and buy five. (laughs) (laughs) Buy five copies of her book. That's the magic number. Okay, I want to ask you also about ritual and ceremony. Um, You talk about this in your book. We talk about it, too. (laughs) Um, But you write about this in your book and the importance of that in your heritage and in how you are uh, reincorporating certain things into your Christian spirituality as well. And I would love to know specifically what are the rituals or the, the ceremony, the honoring that became a part of your writing process in this book? Did you find yourself returning to certain certain things or certain ways of being. I mean, you talked about this tree that you had at one of the places yeah. where you lived. Like, what are some of the things you found yourself returning to as you were in the writing process on this book?
1: Yeah, so this book was um, was really, at times, like, painful to write. Like, a lot of times for me, writing is self-care and it's, it's good to process the writing. Parts of this book were like, I'm going to have to write about this really traumatic thing and I really don't want to, but I know it's important. And there were moments where I had to smudge before I was writing. So I burned sage or I would um, do some of my Potawatomi online lessons just because it's like, just like grounding myself in our language because learning to pray in Potawatomi was one of the first things that like made it so real to me that like we have this beautiful, rich heritage and story that I was never aware of until adulthood. And like, I, I just like it was like I was so thirsty and hungry for something and I didn't, didn't know what it was until I knew what it was. And um, so praying in Pottawatomie has been just um, like such a balm to me and like met good medicine to me. It's funny because um, I've always been weirdly ritualistic. So I'll like okay. be like, I want to wear this ring every time I do this thing. Or, you know, like I would like do weird stuff like that. So like for this tour, I'm wearing the same lipstick for every event. Okay. Because I don't know why I just am, but for some reason it's important to me. Um, so when I was traveling and speaking, I would take there was a I had a braid of sweetgrass that a friend gave to me, and I would take it everywhere I went to speak. Mm-hmm. And I have earrings that have like sacred medicine in them that a friend gave me, and I would wear those when I spoke. So it's like um, just these things that are just like good energy and protection that a lot of people probably wouldn't understand. There's a um, a song by Frank Wall that's called Good Way. And I would listen to it before certain talks. Like if I was really stressed because it's it's a song about just like living in a good way and honoring yourself and honoring creator. And it's just a beautiful song by an indigenous person. So it would ground me in like what I was about to do, you know, and it's, you know, because I go and speak in predominantly white spaces and I speak at places where I don't know how I'm going to be received. It's been really important for me to ground myself in my reality. Like, this is who I am. That fire is in me. This is why I'm called to do this work. This is why I won't give up. And, um, and when the certain events are especially hard, like I have to just like have the music and the earrings and the, the sweet grass, like just, I need these like things to hold me
0: because, um, I just need to remember, you know? Yeah. Same, same, same. Like I, I mean, I miss it terribly right now that I'm not able to do like stage work. But yeah. when I was doing all this stage work, you know, even though, I, you know, you're, you know, imagining 18 year old me that was like libations in the night. No, you know. And then all these years later, I feel like one of the times in life that I feel sort of that presence of my grandmother or my great grandmothers or even the women before me that I didn't know is like that few moments right before I have to go on stage, you know, and I mean, that's just always a time of prayer for me and always a time of calling upon their courage, the courage that it takes to stand in what was their ultimate and uh, experience those parts. And I think having rituals to remind us of that, I think is so beautiful. And I have a request because one of my favorite poems in here was one that you wrote to your ancestors would you read that for us
1: yeah let me let me get my book
0: my uh my phone's
1: dying so i'm like no yes. getting to a charger oh my god <laughs> guys doing technology is hard this is hard, so hard. okay hold on let me prop okay. my phone to where it won't fall so i i set a rock on the cord so that it <laughs> stays in place i've got it down don't worry okay let me find it okay yeah so <clears throat> this is a chapter The chapter is called Ancestors, and this is a poem that I kind of wrote to my ancestors. Passed on one, I see you there, not your skin and bones, nor the frame that once held you. I see your aura, your spirit, your essence. I see the glow of who you once were and who you are today. I see somehow the imprint of what you've left me here. It's not a thumbprint, but some other form of spirit code. Somehow the shape of you carves lines into the essence of who I am. Somehow I am enough because you were enough. Ancestor, your name will always be the sound of breath in my lungs. Ancestor, your face will always look like the face of my own children. Ancestor, your essence will always feel like the wind when it slips through the tree branches singing a song. You, dear one, lead me still. I feel the gifts you've left me, and I wonder how much more is waiting. I learn my own way as I reckon with your mistakes and realize that you were human once, like I am human now. I wonder how much you notice from the other side. What does God feel like? I'll wait, and one day, you'll show me.
0: (sighs) Oh, oh, I love that so much. That question of what does God feel like. So powerful, Caitlin. Okay. I have one more quote I want to read. Uh, y'all, Caitlin and I just going to be talking until Instagram, <laughs> until Instagram be like, y'all can't talk no more. So we just going to keep talking until no, it's no, talk. Yeah. No. But I have one other question I wanted to ask. And it was just this powerful section you had. This is from uh, the chapter Self-Examined. Mm-hmm. And you have this quote here that says, for Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color, It is especially difficult to approach the topic of self care because the system of self care is often so unreachable for those who do not have the money to take care of themselves. There are many layers of privilege in the conversations, and self care is often commodified, becoming yet another product of capitalism. When this happens, it also becomes harder for many of us to care for ourselves. We must consider all of this. And we must consider how our oppressive systems keep so many from getting the care they need. Self-care is for everyone to help us be more healthy humans. But to get there, we all need to be honest about how the system of self-care works for all of us. Mm-hmm. I I loved that you took some time to excavate this because I think... I think self-care is a question I want to ask every woman of color that I ever interview. Yeah. I always want to know how how are you taking care of yourself yeah. in the midst of, you know, resisting empire, in the midst of decolonizing, in the midst of the deconstruction. How in the midst of facing white supremacy every day, how are you taking care of yourself, yeah. right? Um and then sometimes in some shallow ways, it's sort of like what's being put upon us is this idea that like it's getting your nails done. It's, yeah. You know, like, yeah. Getting, and I'm not saying those things no, can't yeah. be self care, but you examining here the systems of self care was so powerful. And I think it gives us a more holistic idea of what that actually means. And I would love to hear you talk more about how you find yourself finding a process of what holistic self care looks like yeah. beyond. The capitalism beyond how commodified it's become. What are your thoughts?
1: It's funny. So when I started therapy, I couldn't afford it. So the therapist I started seeing already knocked it down a lot. And then one of my followers on Twitter was like, "I'll pay for your first six months of therapy. Just tell me how much it is. Just like like PayPal me uh, an amount, and I'll pay for your sessions." And so um, that's how I got to go to therapy. Like otherwise, I never would have been able to afford it. And But at the same time, like I know the privilege that I have to even have the resources or access to even get to a therapist that's a good one. Like I, you know, so that's what I'm saying. Like it's so layered and it's not a straight conversation. But when, you know, when you have women, I'm not trying to judge, when you have women who are like, I had a self care day, I went to the spa and then I had lunch with my best friend and then I went shopping and then I had dinner with my other best friend and then I went and saw a movie. Like, that's amazing. And I love that you get to do that. Most of us can't do that. And, and at the end of the day, like, um, I have to ask what self, like, for me, getting my nails done doesn't do anything. But for a long time, I felt like that was what I was supposed to do for self-care. Because I was told that, like, go get your nails done. That's what women do for self-care. And then I'd be like, oh, you're right. And I'd go do it. And then I spent a lot of money and I didn't like it. And then they chipped after two days and I was like, what am I doing? I didn't I didn't enjoy this. And so like I've had to be honest about what self-care is for me. Like and um and it's things like learning my language. Um it's it literally is things like um smudging and pre- like burning sage to cleanse my anxiety. Um deep breathing, which is free. Like that's something that I like deep exactly breathing people breathing. which is free. Like doing wow. breathing exercises has mm-hmm. helps so much with my anxiety. And then these systems of like self-care for me is like learning to break down these systems of like people pleasing and saying yes to things that I've had to do that I have to start being honest about. And that's Mm -hmm. like the hard self-care. That's not like the, I'm going to spend an afternoon with the magazines and just like chill out and watch a movie, which is also self-care for me. Like that hard self-care of like, I'm going to, Like, look at these systems that I've been taught to participate in as a woman. And I'm going to choose not to have to smile all the time. And I'm going to choose to say no to things. And I'm going to choose, and like that for me has been some real self care that's hard self care. Because self care isn't always like fun either, you know, but we, I think we package it like it's supposed to be fun. Like, shopping is fun. I definitely walk around Goodwill. Well, I used to when it was open, I would walk around Goodwill for self care. I will just walk, walk around
0: and shop at Google, which is cheap. So (laughs) self-care can't be inexpensive people, a jam. So, I mean, I'm back in therapy now. You know, we, we, we celebrate those who are able to access therapy or access those things, whether that can be books or podcasts, whatever you can access that can help you begin to do that healing um, but I was in a place where I was like, I need to save up this money and see a professional. So I had one of my first sessions with her and she was like, I think you need to do some journaling and I'm going to send you some props. And I was like, do what now? <laughs> she's like, no, I want you, she's like, every day I want you to journal on one of these prompts and then I want to talk about it next time we meet. And it was one of those moments where I was like, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. You want me to work? <laughs> You know, and like we don't think about that yeah, as it relates yeah, yeah, to self care. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's hard' what you're saying. Like, so, yes, like healing and growing can be hard sometimes. It will not always be relaxing, but it will lead us to peace.
1: Yeah, and these you know are built for us to not get self care. Like these systems don't want us. They don't want me to consider my identity. They don't want me to learn about all that I am. They don't want me to write write this book. Like you know like i'm at the i'm at, i'm i'm at the number one new release in a uh, christian spiritual growth still and it just makes me laugh because all the other books are just these very evangelical mostly white books and like i'm there hanging out at the top and it's so <laughs> ironic because i speak against so much of the christian growth the the kind of stuff we talk about right now like i'm i'm saying other things but these are things that i think will actually make us grow is by doing this really hard stuff. And it yeah. will, you know, like yeah. it is a form of collective self-care if you want to think of it that way. Like decolonizing is is self-care too. It's
0: and- so true. It doesn't feel like the definition we have, but I love that. I love that you went to that point in your book and, and are giving us, you're giving us a broader definition of that. And I think there's so much of your book that's calling us back, not just to our individual you know thoughts and feelings, but also how does our individual healing and growth connect to the collective? Yeah, to the community. Yeah. You know, as as you are processing, how does that connect to your Potawatomi heritage? I mean, that's one of the things that really meant a lot to me reading this. That it's very, it's reminding us to be communal. Yes, and to be to be Indigenous to honor Indigenous people is to be reminded that we, we are communal people. Yeah. We're not individualistic people, right? Yeah. So they haven't kicked us off yet, Caitlin. I mean, I don't know if anybody has any questions. If they have questions, they better be right questions or I'm not asking her. <laughs> uh- <laughs> yeah, thank you. I do want to ask you this though. Um, the book is out now and there are all these phases to book writing, right? There's like the initial moment where you're like, I think this is the book I need to write. Mm-hmm. And then there's when you do the actual writing. And then there, for those of you that have not written books yet, you have written your book. And then there's almost like this pause, this sort of like Black. calm before <laughs> the storm experience Yeah. before the book comes out, where you are in a way, you're almost like, able to ignore this and yeah. act like these vulnerable things you have written yeah. are not about to turn out into the public. Yeah. And then it's time for your book to come out, which this is book release week for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like,
0: how does it feel seeing the words be out there? I mean, I'm assuming yeah. you're already getting responses from people as yeah. they're reading. Like, how does this phase of this particular book feel yeah. now that it's out there? You
1: know, I've had so much anxiety about this book because it's a book that like a lot of people won't like for a lot of reasons, you know, and and um, and that's OK. Like, it's a very personal book. It's a you know, it's really like digging into a lot of my own stuff. But like what I realized this week when the book came out and people started like speaking back to me what I wrote and talking about it. I was able to, like, finally tell people what the book's about. Because I feel like I had interviews in that lull where people would be like, so what's your book about? And I'd be like, um... And then it would take me, like, 20 minutes to figure out how to tell people. And now I, like, I know what to say. You know, like, I know what the book's about because someone read it and they told me. (laughs) Like, they told me what it's about. And that reflected what I hoped it was about. And so we're good now. You know, like... Yeah. But it, it it was a weird space in there. And I don't know. People on the internet have been really amazing like so far just like so supportive and it's so scary to release a book in a pandemic like what in the world like what do we even uh, like I have no there's no way to know how it's going to go and so to have this support has been awesome like it's been really beautiful I'm really surprised by it
0: I I, I talked to Caitlin on the phone earlier today y'all and I told her like it was just making me so happy like seeing everyone sharing your book and supporting you because your, your voice is so needed. And, uh, I, we, we actually, for those of you that are new to the conversation, Caitlin and I put out our last books on the same day, actually. So we were kind of like walking together through that whole, like, Oh my God, what did we do? (laughs) Um, so (laughs) I got to have that experience with you, with your first book, which was also so wonderful. So it was just, it just did my heart a lot of good to see how much people are supporting this. And the people on here are going to support it. They're going to be buying five of these books at a time. Y'all can buy one for yourself. The thing about good thing about buying five books, people, is when people are like, oh man, like I would love a copy of Caitlin's book. You can be like, boom, I got it. You know, I'm, I'm throw it in <laughs> this envelope. Okay, we do have one question. Oh, it's Jess asked, how do you respond when someone claims that you aren't a believer because of how they perceive your theology to be something that's unconventional. Oh well.
1: We can just talk about what happened at Baylor a few months ago. That's What's what there. Um you know, because there they, you know, they were like, she's oh what they call me, a pa- a pagan sympathizer. <laughs> Which is funny to me because I'm like, I would rather just be called pagan. I don't really know what, <laughs> what your point is, you know. Um what I'm what I'm learning is that the more that I push back on Christianity and what, what people think Christianity is, the more that I receive this kind of Mm. negative pushback and I'm learning to kind of take it as a, a not medal of honor, but I'm like, I'm okay with it. Um, You know, I think it would be harder to receive it from like from close friends or from friends that like have, known me for a long time and are like what are you doing you know like who just don't understand like of course that's harder when you get it from your personal like people um but like when the Baylor thing happened it was really hard but then there was this again on Twitter like all these people were like go buy Caitlin's book like this is why her work matters and I just was so um overwhelmed by that and so I just have to like look to my ancestors look to why we have gone through this. And then look to the people, whether they're Christian or not, who have always supported me. And I like know, and I know that they will. And um, there are people who, who my, because my book is with Christian Publishing House, won't buy it because they think I'm writing a book like every other Christian. Right. And it's kind of one of those things where you just have to read it and see what you think, because it's not, not going to be what you think it is either way. Like I am in the Christian world, but it's also very much, it would bother a lot of Christians what I've written you know? And so, yeah. but I'm okay with that.
0: Look, I'm trying to tell you, and I think it's, I think even as we've been talking about, which is so present here in your book, as we've been talking about what, you know, deconstruction and decolonization look like, you know, I was just talking to my husband about how, you know, as I was growing up, I sort of, I, I had a very binary faith and it worked for me for a long time yeah. until I was like, well, "Well, well, life is getting real, yeah, <laughs> not so binary. What does that mean? You know?" And I think um, there were so many things I was taught to believe in various, not just like my upbringing as a child, but my upbringing in different like faith environments. You know, that made me feel like if I start asking more questions if I start feeling like some definitions I used to have are broadening that that's this slippery slope. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, that was the actual term. Like you're going to get down there. It's going to be a slippery slope. <laughs> my husband, my husband, I always joke. There's always this phrase. People would say, be careful. I'd <laughs> like five E's <laughs> <Be> careful. <laughs> You'd be like, I'm, I'm just trying to learn a few things. It's not like I'm um, on no literal ice sliding down. to <laughs> I'm not some, like I'm on literal ice. <laughs> a broken bone here, like I'm just scary doing enough. Th- that metaphorical ice.
1: Yeah, watch out. <laughs> it know? is. It's really scary. It's scary, and I know. I know we scare people, but it's okay. Like yeah. it's okay. It's okay to be challenged. Like w- that's that's how we grow. Like you read a thing and you're like, I don't know if I, I like that. And then you think about it for five days and you decide more whether it might be something to consider. Like that's, that's what we do as humans. And that's okay.
0: Okay. We got two more questions, Caitlin. You have time. I know you have all. Yeah. Two more is good. And then we'll Okay. So first question is, uh, what's your favorite coffee that you're drinking right now? Oh gosh. Do you have a fave?
1: We buy, um. We buy our coffee from a local international market here in Atlanta. They roast their beans there. Have you bought their coffee at the Decab Farmers Market, girl? Did you know they roast beans about? there? I don't know. I don't know. There's Let me find there. out. It's really good. Anyway, we buy a like a light roast um, bean <laughs> coffee bean bag bag of coffee beans at the at the market. And then we bring it home and grind it. And it's our favorite. Um, I like South American blends, if that's the kind of thing you're wanting to know. I don't like African blends as much. They're more acidic for me. And mm-hmm. they hurt my stomach a little. So mm. I like South American, like Brazil and Colombian.
0: Wow. Um, I just may have learned more about coffee than anticipated. <laughs> so thank you. You're welcome. Um, someone also asked, what did you learn about yourself? While writing this book, oh gosh, I learned so much. Um,
1: there's this quote by E.E. E. Cummings. I said it to Glendon the other night too, but it's like, be courageous enough to grow up and become who you really are. And <laughs> I think that this book was just that next step for me to grow up and become who I am. You know, like to look at my own story. Hi, Tiff. Oh, my sister's here. <laughs> um, to look at my own story from my perspective, like just to to take it for myself and go through my childhood and go through, you know, and like, just say, who was I at these phases of life? And what, what am I learning? What am I learning about myself now? And just to kind of have that conversation with myself and then let everyone listen in on it. So that's, you know, and it, it, I learned uh, so much, so
0: much. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Y'all. I could talk to Caitlin all night long and thankfully Instagram must've gave us a few extra minutes because Caitlin's amazing. So I want to remind you to do this, this book right here. You can get this wherever you like to buy your books, five of them. That would be the best thing. Caitlin Curtis, do you have any closing words you want to share with the people? Do you have any upcoming things you want to tell the people? And of course, if the people are not following you, they need to do that too.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of podcasts that are coming out soon. I did one with the liturgist yesterday and um, just a bunch of podcasts. And so please read the book and review it online and tell people about it because I'm, yeah, I've just been so encouraged by the conversations that are already being started because of it. So please buy it and read it. I would love that.
0: Caitlin, thank you for letting me be a part of your virtual book tour. Thank y'all for joining us and listening. This will be available on my IG for the next 24 hours. And- You don't know, Caitlin and I might get back together and talk about all sorts of things. You don't know, but you make sure you do this. You're going to get this for yourself, okay? Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, guys. I love talking to Caitlin. I hope you enjoyed listening in on our conversation and I'm hoping to have her back on the podcast very soon. To find out more about Caitlin, visit... CaitlinCurtis.com. That's K-I-T-L-I-N-C-U-R-T-I-C-E.com. And don't worry, if you do not get this spelling correct, you can get the correct spelling and other tidbits, links, things from the show in the show notes. You can check out the show notes at Aminabrown.com slash her with Amina. See y'all next week. With Amina Brown is produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions as a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast.